This episode of the Vulture TV podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code VULTURE at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Gazella Mami, Vulture's TV editor, and I'm here with Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Solar Seitz. How are you guys doing? Hey, good. Pretty good. <laughs> so we're doing something a little different today. We're going to start by discussing the Game of Thrones finale as show watchers only. And then in the second half of the podcast, we're going to bring on Vulture Game of Thrones book readers, Jennifer Vineyard and Nate Jones. And we're just going to jump right in because this was a pretty action-packed episode. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way of putting it. (laughs) I have a very high threshold of tolerance for violence and cruelty in movies and TV shows because it's all about it's never the acts that upset me. It's always the the way they are presented and sort of the worldview of the show. But even so, even though I understand what Game of Thrones is going for and what it is, this whole season was an endurance test for me. I mean, mm-hmm. it was so there was so much sadism, cruelty, humiliation. You know, I, I've read articles arguing, you know, did Game of Thrones cross the line? I don't know. I mean, not any line that they haven't been crossing for the last right. four seasons, you know, but still the, the the extent of it seemed extraordinary to me and the duration of a lot of those types of moments. The Walk of Shame felt like it went on for five days. In an episode where every scene felt like two minutes long, that scene actually... They, it, it they went spent on. a little longer. But I also it. think it's possible to cross a line due to a cumulative effect and not yeah. just a one instant, right? That it's possible that maybe you could tolerate occasional violence or occasional child death and that repetitive, constant violence and child death would eventually become too much. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, like, I don't think there's any one part of Game of Thrones where you're like, no, that's the part where I immediately object, right? This is a show that has demonstrated over and over its capacity and, frankly, appetite for mm-hmm. profound violence. But that said, I think there is, like, an internal threshold that can get crossed. Yeah, Right, absolutely. I don't think that's a ridiculous I mean, idea. Margaret, you wrote a piece recently about Game of Thrones' relentless misery and yeah. how it kind of starts to wear on you and... Right, because it just creates a lack of texture, Mm -hmm. right? And so the same way that, you know, I I have a lower tolerance for violence than Matt, but that said, there's plenty of shows I enjoy that have tremendous, absurd, horrific violence, and that's not what I like about them, but I like stories that include that, at least sometimes. What I liked about earlier seasons, and, and I'm not a huge Game of Thrones person, but I liked seeing instances of humanity, of joy, of compassion, of romantic love, of authentic sexuality, right? Like these parts of the characters that made them human beings and their lives felt hatched. We saw them eat and drink and and play music and and those aspects of personhood. And I feel like in the last season especially, we've lost any part of that in favor of just brutality. Do you think they're trying to bring us down to this, you know, we've hit rock bottom in order to kind of like Very possibly. And and I had this moment watching the finale last night where I flashed back to being, you know, a middle schooler and seeing The Empire Strikes Back. 
You know, <laughs> like when you're a little kid and you see something like that, you get to the end of it and you go, wait a minute, that's the ending? Like, you know, you feel like things are absolutely as bad as they can possibly get for our heroes. Will they ever get out of it? Mm-hmm. And I feel like not having read the novels, I'm guessing that that's sort of the direction. What, what they're going for. Yeah, and it's like fine. Uh, but like what Margaret was saying, it is a textured thing. That's a really good way of putting it. One thing I do really like is how there are people who do bad things, and yet I'm constantly surprised by how I feel sympathy for people who could be coded as bad in almost any sort of way that you look at them. Like Cersei Lannister, I felt tremendous sympathy for her, and seeing her in that jail cell for the last two episodes being humiliated and pushed into confessing, there's no better way to make a a really a scummy, horrible, mean character sympathetic than to have them tormented by religious fanatics, (laughs) you know? And uh, Stannis, I actually felt a little something, I felt kind of sad for Stannis. I don't don't think he's a great guy or anything. He's certainly, uh, and you could say he certainly deserves what he eventually got, but... The look on his face as he realized that everything he's done, all the sacrifices he's made, including his own daughter, are for nothing is kind of moving. Yeah. I mean, and I was surprised by that. The show is interesting because even if you feel like someone deserves what they're getting, you still don't feel necessarily like good about how they're being treated. So what did you think of the Walk of Shame? How did you feel about the way they handled it? You know, on the list of things that aren't really for me. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> that said, I'm, I am somebody who's like really fascinated by like religiosity and culture and, and how religion becomes sort of a clearinghouse for big feelings, whether those feelings are love or degradation or shame. And religion becomes a way that we focus and metabolize those sensations as a culture. I think for this moment, you know, I thought some of the CGI was pretty crap. I'll be honest. Yeah. I thought that was not you mean right. Pacing, you mean pacing the, her the head body on double. somebody else's The body, body double. Yeah. yeah uh, I think some of the scope was a little phony baloney to me right in some of those long shots it was like is this shrek right with like <laughs> right with that like sort of why like, like oh there's like the tower and the you know that kind of stuff that's like a sore point for the whole series which is that in moments that are so personal i think sometimes the show loses yeah. grasp of a human story in favor of being epic right, right. and so it, i think this sort of bounced around a little for that when cersei finally kind of stumbles to the ground she kind of breaks down at that point and I thought her acting was amazing in that scene when I went back and rewatched it because the first time I watched it I was so distracted as you were but when you like focus on her face and like when you actually see her expression change and she she's holding it in the whole time and then once she falls she finally loses it a little I thought that was very effective yeah and there's a lot of in the way they framed a lot of those scenes like the chopping off of her hair and the way that they 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 photographed her face it's very you know, tipping its hat very knowingly to representations of Joan of Arc, and I thought that was really beautiful. Like it was, be- it was horrible, but also beautiful the mm-hmm. way they photographed it. And she brought it; she absolutely brought it in that performance. What did you guys think about how how they kind of tacked on Jon Snow's death in the final moments? To me, that's almost maybe on the short list of definitive Game of Thrones moments. That's mm-hmm. right up there. You know, like he's. He's the nicest guy on the show consistently. He's the representative of all that is decent and kind and salvageable in, in humanity. And they do a Julius Caesar on him at the end of, the, of season five. It's just it's it's what can you say? Like, you know, it, it, either it's for you or it's not for you. Yeah. But it definitely had an element of the mean older sibling going, look at this doll. Isn't she pretty? And then twisting its neck. Yeah. You know, like it, there is something almost wantonly vicious about that. Also, we're radically reducing the number of people who have any kind of reasonable claim to the throne, 
right? And so after Stannis sacrifices his daughter and then he dies, like, okay, so we're really running low on Baratheons now, (laughs) right? Like, we're sort of, right? And then in terms of Stark lineage, so it's a patrilineal society, so the Stark lineage is now Bolton, right? And Arya doesn't appear to be super interested in being married. Right now we have like Bran is left and maybe like gene pool depletion. Right. So yeah. there's just like yeah. a lot of kind of confusion about that, which is why maybe like Daenerys is still like the sort of clearest option because she's one of few surviving people who's had any kind of on the job training. Right. right? Like she is the only one who's getting good at leading stuff other than John. And we and we've seen John and Daenerys played as sort of poles for each other in a lot of ways in terms of the person who shouldn't have been good and turns out like is actually pretty good at this and the person who was marginalized and cast off and is sort of the oddball in their family finding acceptance and and maybe power slightly outside of their obvious family structures. So I think having her reconnect with the Dothraki, which is the first place that she became beloved and certainly grew very much to like love and care for Dothraki people uh, and identify as Dothraki. Yeah, we're we're playing that off of John, right? And so we're seeing those sort of twist at each other. um, And I think it's helpful to think of those stories as in conversation. So I think John's death, again, like, I don't totally buy it. Like, I'd be surprised if it was like, yeah, and we never hear about him again. Like, (laughs) nope, we don't see him. We don't see a single thing because we've already been told so much about how much magic is, like, extant in that area of their world. We've seen Melisandre on a couple of occasions, talk about or like embody people who have died. She got in a good line this season of like, she got in the, you know, nothing Jon Snow, right? Like we saw her do that. I think we're supposed to buy that, that her sacrifice did ultimately cause divine intervention, not the way they wanted, but that's how divine mm. intervention usually works. Right. That like you get what you asked for, but right. be careful because it won't, you know, right. you get it wrong, right? That's how every wish narrative operates. Right. We've also seen the dead rise to be part of the zombie army. We've also learned about the grayscale stone men, right? Which is like some sort of parallel, not alive, not dead situation. So I think we have all these examples. And then, you know, again, with Arya, we have the dead, not dead, right? right. The me that's not me. We have the poison and the reversal of poison over and over this season, right? So we have all of these stories of dead but not dead, lost but found, magical but destructive. Not right? a, death and life not being polarities but a continuum. Look, is it possible that this is it for him? Of course. Like, I don't know. I'm. This is not a narrative that, that I have Talmudic knowledge of. That said, it would surprise me given all of the other things that have surrounded the death narrative of this season and sort of what constitutes death in this culture, how we approach death. We've seen a lot of like funereal rites throughout the series and we haven't seen any of that for John, right? So we've seen a Night's Watchman's funeral and we, we saw how that's ritualized and sort of finalized. We know this is a culture that does sometimes burial, sometimes does cremation. We've seen the sort of way that people are interred or there are stone statues of them as part of their legacy or whatever. So we have all of these rites and rituals that go around death and and we watch the washing of dead bodies for where Arya is, right? So we know all of these things about like, what does death entail? What would it mean to be dead? How do we approach death in our society? And and how do we decide someone is actually dead? And we didn't have any of those things happen for John. In Nina Shen's Rostogi's recap, she wrote about how all the characters are kind of paying the consequences of things that they've done wrong. So you're kind of seeing that all come to a head for everyone where in literally every scene, it's just like, well, you're you're going to have to pay for what you've done, even with Jon Snow. Yeah. I mean, I did feel like this episode very much felt like the first time I think things turned. Like the way I imagined it was like when, you know, when we have Ned Stark's death, that sort of is like the rock dropping into the puddle. And ever since then, we've been 
all spreading outwards. Every domino that's fallen since then has been out and sometimes physically, right, to, to pass the wall across the seas. Like we're going as far as we can. And now we're starting to suck back in. Right. And so with John's maybe death, although I'm not convinced he's dead, I guess I'd buy it if he were. But I, I don't really know one way or the other. I'd be surprised, but I don't put a big amount of stock in that. We're starting to get everyone coming back. Right. So suddenly Daenerys is back among the Dothraki. Suddenly we know that John has already gone past the wall and he's back and he's trying to go towards Winterfell. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's what's happening. We see Arya starting to check people off of her list and, and really physically is digging through faces the last time we see her. Right. Before she's blinded. And, you know, we got Jorah and Daenerys back together. Like, we see everyone kind of starting to circle back into what was up. And we see Cersei literally walking back to the castle, right? Like, everything that that was set in motion spinning outward is now going to get sucked back in. At least that's right. my hope. Mm-hmm. Because I am pretty tired of everything spreading out. And I'm ready for things to start mm-hmm. connecting. Contracting, harder. yeah. And especially if you think about, like, every season of the show, for me, it's like the first five, I'm like... Uh, right, it's a lot of setup, 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 right. and then we start knocking him down, and then usually the penultimate episode is like ah, crazy, and then the tenth episode is less um, like extreme and mm-hmm. a little bit more like it's more like settling the accounts. Yeah. It's like now let's you know this is it's that Godfather. Now we settle all family business. So usually episode ten is where they handle right, that. and yeah. I think that's common for a lot of sort of high octane dramas to have that penultimate episode be be the crazy one and and the finale the that's season the sopranos finale. that's the sopranos model probably it's not just the sopranos certainly yeah but, but they it, perfected it <laughs> and at least popularized it yeah right? yeah yeah and i think in the scheme of things like if we're going to go seven seasons this would make this the sort of anti-penultimate season right hmm. so we're still we're getting things knocked down now we're, we're in like the knock them down phase and I like theoretically next season would be the crazy one and the seventh season would be tying things up. That's mm. a pretty zoomed out view. I'm not sure that the show thinks about it that way. I'm going to guess that they don't but it did start to feel like okay things are really the tides have turned and now we're, we're starting to move back towards a resolution. Is that how many there's supposed to be seven? Is that what so they've been doing? That's what they've, that's what said. they've said. Right. But, I mean, but they HBO said they want said they would do they want to go on forever. So. Right. And you could easily imagine plenty of spin-offs and prequels right? I mean mm-hmm. right. and certainly the stuff that got left out of the show and I haven't read the books but and this isn't a spoiler, there's a lot more about their religiosity and, right. and the sort of myths of the olden days. I don't think that ruins anything for watchers of the show to know Stonehenge. that Stonehenge <laughs> uh, to know more about so you know, you could easily imagine other shows set within a Westerosi yeah. <laughs> society. The Thrones of Earth. Yeah. <laughs> I could, right? Yeah, I mean yeah, yeah. I don't I see it. demand them, but I could imagine them. Can we talk a little bit about some of the specific plot points we see in this episode? One of the moments I thought was slightly more uplifting was the Sansa Theon scene where they hold hands and jump off together, even though it seemed like a kind of perilous drop. But uh, yeah, <laughs> we have a clip here of the moment before that with Miranda cornering Sansa with a bow and arrow and Theon then pushing her to her death. I've come to escort you back to your chamber. Go with it, please. I know what Ramsay is. I know what he'll do to me. If I'm going to die, let it happen while there's still some of me left. Die? But who said anything about dying? You can't die. Your father was warden of the North. Ramsay needs you. Though I suppose he doesn't need all of you. Just the parts he'll use to make his heir 
until you've given him a boy or two and he's finished using them. Then he's got incredible plans for those parts. So, shall we wait for him to come back or should we begin now? You're leaving it to me. Good. Let's begin. What did you make of this scene and how we left Sansa here after a season of watching her struggle to have any kind of agency? I wasn't really happy with the resolution of that because I wanted more agency, I guess I would say. But the show does what it does. So yeah. anytime, anytime I register an objection about that, I always feel like, well... You know, who the hell cares what you think? You know, like they're doing sure. what they're doing, you know? Yeah, but, I mean, but it, it I, it like, doesn't mean I have to like it. It felt like I, if the fugitive ends when he jumps in the waterfall. Right? Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. The end. Right? It's yeah. like, that's not when the fugitive ends, and he, like, continues to fugitive. I felt, <laughs> right? Like, we don't want that, like, that moment to me. I mean, my first thought was, are, are we supposed to assume that that was her suicide? Right. And I don't think we are. But no, I, 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 don't I don't think know, we are. But, but I don't, I don't think, think so. I don't think you can watch someone jump off the side of a building and not have a thought for a second wait, is she killing herself? Yeah. So at first I thought that was some kind of like radical agency, mm-hmm. which I found sad, but understandable, right? Because mm-hmm. she was just told like, you're going to be tortured to death while you're giving birth as many times as possible. And like, we'll chop off every piece of you. Like, we don't give a shit. So you could imagine circumstances under which you would decide, no, I would prefer to die. Right? That doesn't seem insane. Right. For sure. I guess I don't care enough about Theon, ultimately. <laughs> like, I care so I much moved. more about Sansa. I, I, I was moved by his story, and I found myself, you know, his presence at the margins of that story. Of course, if you've watched the entire run of the show, you think about how he basically spent an entire season being tortured and ultimately castrated. And so his presence as this kind of paralyzed, mute witness to, to her suffering was uh, it was affecting. It was yeah. affecting for me. And I understand, you know, we've talked about this scene briefly before, but the scene where she's raped on her wedding night and they cut to Theon was criticized for making it about him. I felt like that was sort of maybe going for a compromise between just cutting away entirely, which would have made would have probably seemed cavalier, like it was just another plot point, versus staying on her, which could seem even more sadistic. But I think it was misjudged. His feeling paralyzed because of what he went through was was a way of kind of making us complicit in that scene. Like, you know, I felt like he was me. In a way, like that's oh, that's me watching Game of Thrones every week for five seasons, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, and I thought that was effective. And him tossing Miranda off the balcony like a sack of potatoes, I thought was very well done. And what a great foley thump! Very nice, yes. <laughs> Moist with a little bit of yeah. bone breakage. Yeah. And it was a relief to see that spark of humanity still exists in him, right? Because yeah. what I think we were supposed to think in that rape scene was that this is how broken Theon is, right? We know that he's been so abused and and so tortured and violated that is it possible there's no real person left inside him that he is Mm -hmm. this sort of horrific shell of whatever humanity he ever had a hunk of meat and so in this moment we see there is a spark i mean i I guess she's not physically that far away from brienne who's sworn to protect her right if sansa can just catch up with brienne and brienne is close enough to see the tower right i mean I am never super clear on how far away everyone is and how yeah. long it takes to get places. I mean, I feel like we've often seen characters where we know they're close to one another and they never end up meeting up. And <laughs> we're like, well, was that Bran and uh, Jon Snow sure. a few seasons back? Yeah. They like never kind of 
Right. That said, I think we're running out of of new people we can possibly be still introducing, right? Like, if we're going to have, what, Theon and Sansa on the run, even though we've seen unlikely duos on the run many, many times over the course of the show, like, that was Arya's whole arc Mm -hmm. for three and a half seasons was, like, Arya on the run. I don't think watching Sansa and Theon, like, oh, they're going to, like, make a camp. Like, what are they going to eat? Like, how label the fire, right? Like, that kind of stuff that we've seen. <laughs> Beans again? But we've seen we've seen it happen over and over, right? I mean, we we saw it, part of it in this episode with, with Brienne and Prodrick just, like, hanging out in the yeah. woods, being like, oh, fuck the woods, right? Like, well, <laughs> I think, th- I believe that's a direct quote from this episode. I think it is, yeah. Sorry, George R. I'm going to rip you yeah. off here. But, I mean, in terms of what I hope happens, I want to see the story happen already and see less build up. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm built up. I'm ready. It's also kind of a strange feeling talking about Game of Thrones in this way because it is in some ways a very sophisticated and knowing piece of entertainment, but in other ways it's very, very old-fashioned. Like, it's Mm -hmm. just a really nasty swashbuckler. And I was thinking, particularly in the finale, how many times have we had a scene where somebody gets somebody else right where they want them, they're about to kill them, and then we have the fallacy of the talking bad guy, you know, like, I am going to kill you because of blah 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 and while It's they like, do oh, that... have you ever heard the myth of this thing? And then right. they tell you yeah. this, like, sort of related myth that's, like, explaining some of their philosophy. <laughs> and, and while like, that happens, yeah. someone else comes up behind them and whacks them on the head with a, right, with in a the meat meantime, cleaver or Robin whatever. shows up and Batman makes his escape. Exactly right. And so we're dealing with, you know, the basest, most ridiculous, silly, kind of please a nine-year-old kind of melodrama, but also TVMA, hardcore, Shakespearean, godfather kind of, you know, study in power and and sadism. And uh, the two parts of it are, are always going to be a little bit in conflict. And and I feel like we that really came through, like that may be the root of any issues that I had with season five, because that melodrama, that sort of escapist melodrama that we all love, it's a very simple entertainment. It's a crowd-pleasing entertainment, and it's a kind of entertainment that you can get away with suggesting things, you know? Like, that's that's why a lot of action films seem more violent than they actually are. And yet this show actually shows you things. They show you, like, there's... When I think of this season, I think of uh, that close-up of Cersei walking... There was a, like, a shot of her, like, walking past some guts. Like, you see her foot, like, walking over some entrails or something, you know? Or maybe I'm remembering something from season four. There's something like that in every mm-hmm. episode. There's, like, there's blood, there's gore, there's people with their eyes gouged out. It's unbelievable. And it's a serious show, and yet you also, there are moments when you honestly can't take it that seriously. Well, you're just like, how is anyone still alive? Right. Like, how are these cities populated whatsoever? Every episode, there's like, oh, and over there, there's a bunch of hobos murdering each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, how is hobo culture alive at all? Like, how are anyone, like, how is anyone making it to adulthood? (laughs) Well, yeah, and you also get this weird thing where people defend the, the more kind of deliberately outrageous excesses of the show, you know, the, of the violence, by saying, well, that's how things were back then. It's like, what do you mean back then? There's dragons and zombies. <laughs> I mean, there were no dragons and zombies back then. Like, this is an entirely created universe. It consists entirely of things that the people who made it wanted to be in there. It's not like they're reciting, like, the actual history of an actual country. Let's talk a little bit more about what happened in, in the finale episode. What did you guys think of Arya's storyline this season? We really see, like, her deliver one of the most brutal death scenes I've seen on the show, aside from, what's his name, Oberon, Oberon oh, yeah. getting his face smashed. Yeah. Do you feel like there's any Arya left in Arya? Like, do you think she's just completely single-mindedly driven by her revenge? Probably, but, you know, if history has proved anything about that type of situation is that you 
Under the right circumstances, humanity that has been submerged can emerge again. You know, there are people who were torture victims, they were in concentration camps, or they, you know, they were drafted into an army and turned into killers, and then after a certain matter of years, under the right circumstances, they can become human again. So, you know, anything is possible, but within the context of the show, that's some bleak shit. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty fucked up. That said, we've also seen Arya literally bury parts of herself for later, mm-hmm. right? We saw yeah. that earlier this season when, when they were like, you got to get rid of all your stuff, and she threw a bunch of her stuff in the ocean, and then she was like... Needle, I'm going to save you, right? So we know mm-hmm. that there's this part of Arya that's thinking about, like, wait a second, I might need this part of myself later, right? So she has to give up all of this stuff in sort of this series of, I don't know, religious recusals of, of selfhood, yeah. um, like a reduction of ontological commitments for the rest of her life. Like, she still has – she's, like, working really hard to keep this little, like, thread of herself alive. And, and even as she's killing that guy, that's exactly what she's done, right? That is the part of her that she has kept from what she's supposed to be doing, which is shedding off all of the things about her previous life. She decided to hang on to this part, right? And that's yeah. why she kills that guy, because that was her list. And we knew that about her, that she had this list, and she wasn't kidding. And also she's standing up for people who can't stand up for themselves, so th- those other two girls in the scene. For whatever reason, that was the scene that sort of – that's the kind of violence that bothers me – Maybe the least is because it was, like, extremely purposeful. And, like, Arya, we were warned about it for, like, five years. And Arya's vengeance has, like, a real emotional connection, right? I think sometimes the violence on this show does not have the same emotional resonance and the stakes seem different. So when we have Cersei's walk of shame, all the people standing around and, like, throwing garbage at her and stuff, it was like, oh, is this just, like, a general distaste for her? Is this personal? Are you, right? And I was just like, is this just like culturally whoever is doing this walk of shame would be treated this way, right? There was no, I think they all hate her, you know? I don't think there's a whole lot of love for her. They've been feeling resentful towards her for a while. But yeah. I think that like, that, and it's true of like Daenerys' subjects too, mm-hmm. but I think it's, it's like radically depersonalized. I don't, if any of those characters had a name, I certainly don't know it, right? right. So we have this sort of like mass of feeling that doesn't have any sort of specific personal thread connection to Cersei or certainly not one that we've experienced. Whereas for Arya, we had this like profound herness to what was happening. And this was a trick she was able to pull off. She saw it last week and she was like, ooh, that's my in. Right. We saw like all the wheels sort of turn. And for a show that I'm sometimes frustrated by its lack of emotional threads, I thought, you know, as gory and, and upsetting as the scene was, it felt much more I don't know, functional to me as part of what mm-hmm. Arya's story actually is. There's another thing happening in this season which is was kind of fascinating to me, and it sort of nagged at me the entire time I was watching it, which is this, this zombie army. <laughs> the zombie army that's amassing, and every time they take casualties, those casualties are added to the ranks of the zombie army. Yeah. Well, that's a pretty neat model for military conquest. And so here's this thing that's happening. It's this enormous event that dwarfs, you know, as Jon Snow correctly realizes, it dwarfs in importance every other thing that's happening in the kingdom. And no one else really seems to understand this because they're not on the wall. They haven't seen what he's seen. And and there's only really a few characters who understand the gravity of the situation. But what that does is, and this is a little weird, but bear with me, on the Americans, there's a sort of a weird, poignant kind of tragic undertow to the Americans because everything that they're doing, like all the killing, all the seduction, all the double crossing and all of that stuff is in service of a war that the Soviet Union is going to lose. Like they're going to lose the Mm -hmm. Cold War. We know this because it's a historical drama. Like we know how that story turned out. So there's this overwhelming sense of futility. And I'm starting to feel a sense of futility on Game of Thrones because of what's happening with the undead, you know, with the Walker Mm -hmm. army. Now, when we go into the next season, 
I'm going to be thinking about that no matter what else is happening. I'm going to be thinking like, this is a waste of your time. This is a waste of your time. What is that going to do to the viewer's sensibilities? You know, like, how, yeah. how is that going to affect us? Is that a deal breaker? I'm kind of wondering if it is for me, because like you can you can endure almost any kind of sadness, suffering, unfair reversal of expectation, violence, torture, rape, whatever, as long as you feel like it's leading somewhere, like it's for a reason. There's some kind of end goal in sight. But here, I don't know. You so, know, I don't know. I don't know why I'm bringing all this up. So it's you just, feel like it's just there's no possible way they could win against this Oh, I'm sure they can. It's a fantasy and, you know, they've got Valerian steel and I'm sure there's, <laughs> you know, I'm sure the the witch lady can pull some miracle out of her butt. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's you can do anything in a fantasy. So I'm not saying all is lost. I'm just saying the threat is so immense that it overshadows every other bit of intrigue that's happening in the kingdom. Well, that's and, what and, I... it, and it's an, it's things feel out of balance to mm-hmm. me, and I don't know if there's anything to be done about that. And probably most people don't care. It's probably just me, but I bring it up. No, that was one of the things I was thinking about, especially as somebody who really liked The Watchmen back in the day, right? Yeah. So we have this idea. Like for me, I guess initially you think that the big battle that's coming is going to be like between Daenerys and like Jon Snow right sort of or some kind of part of like these five warring how like that's going to be you know that kind of face off and I think what's becoming clear especially as the people on our fringes like physical fringes of where people are living are encountering magic to a degree that people sort of more inland or not eventually the fight is going to be between all of humanity is on one side and you know, all magic or whatever is on the other side. And that's going to be the White Walkers and the zombies. Theoretically, maybe, like, are we going to have dragons versus White Walkers? We have, like, a fire and ice battle there. I think ultimately for me, like, the the battles between the houses and the reasons that those beefs exist are tedious often. And especially when it's like, oh, because of the tax law. It's just like, oh, holy shit. Like, I don't care at all. Oh, my God. It's like, oh, when he was master of coin, it's like, oh, stop right there. Not interested. Versus the like, oh. It's a tad phantom menace. Well, it's just like, you know, I don't care about that stuff in real life. Why would I care about it in this? Versus the like, what would it mean for our civilization to endure in, in any capacity? It would mean us teaming up and it turns out there's only one part like one faction is even capable of still making valerian steel and so we're gonna all have to be on that side and only one group of us knows how to do this thing and so we're all gonna have to agree that like we'll drop it and so you know we'd seen john broker some kind of deal between theoretically opposed factions john is maybe out of the picture although I, i again doubt it we've seen Tyrion broker here and there and even as they left him last night it was like well that's your kind of thing right you talk and he's like well yeah I also drank right that was his line right. so I think the sort of swirling battle that I the, the, the storm clouds are gathering for is not I hope just between like who gets to be the king it's like I don't care none who's of that matters right? now like all yeah. of that obviously who's going to save the kingdom are we is humanity going to endure whatsoever are, will we have human beings or will we not and well if there's we're going sci- to... that's a narrative of a lot of science fiction films that are about you know the e- extraterrestrial invasion causes all of the all of the countries in the United Nations to usually squabble to get together to kick some extraterrestrial butt right you know like yeah. this is a this is just you know what has to happen and you know, we see analogs for that in history the the Hindus and the Muslims in India didn't have a whole lot of nice things to say to each other, but they could agree that they didn't want the British having their, their boot on their neck. You know, <laughs> like there's, there, there's examples of that every decade, big ones. But again, it's like for me, it's a matter of dramatic balance. And I look at this, I look at this looming threat, which clearly is the thing that everyone needs to worry about, much more so than who's in charge of which house. And I only 
fixate on it because we ha- we are at the end of season five now, and it feels like a rather big buildup, a rather long buildup, a, la- a rather detailed buildup to get to the point where we're where I feel like we're at, which is none of that shit matters. Here come the zombies. We better deal with this. We're going to talk more about this with our book experts. Thanks so much, Matt and Margaret. Anytime. Thank you. So we're going to switch out now and bring in our book experts. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute. Our sponsor this week is Squarespace, an easy, intuitive way to build professionally designed sites regardless of skill level with no coding required. The tools are easy to use, and Squarespace has state-of-the-art technology to power your site, ensuring security and stability. Millions of people have been using Squarespace, and it's one of the most respected brands in the world. At just $8 a month, you get a free domain if you sign up for a year. Start your free trial today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code VULTURE to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. We're back now with Jennifer Vineyard and Nate Jones, our Game of Thrones experts over at Vulture. Thanks for being with us, guys. Thanks for having us, Gazelle. Thanks for having us. So there's a lot that happened in this episode, and this whole season has kind of Nate, you wrote about this. The narrative of this season has been how it's diverged from the books. And I wanted to start by talking about Stannis, because that's something that I'd heard was one of the bigger departures from the book. Can you guys offer any insights into how big of a departure it is, if we just haven't seen it and it could potentially happen? Well, it's huge because basically you're having two characters that have confronted each other who have not met in the books Brienne is actually off on a completely different mission, Mm -hmm. not avenging Renly. And Stannis, where we last left him, has been kind of about to siege Winterfell, but not quite. He he has been in limbo for probably, I would say, half of A Dance with Dragons. Yeah, he's had a lot of problem with the snow. And winter has come, you know, in his part of the world. And it's really hard for him to, to progress forward. And he did not have someone like Melisandre saying, hey, I can melt the snow if you just burn your daughter. So... He's kind of been trapped there, and people have been coming to him and visiting him, and he's had various involvements besides just his camp, but not these people and not in this manner. He has not had this big confrontation, Mm -hmm. and he certainly hasn't died, and his wife is still alive, and his daughter is still alive, and House Baranthian still exists in some form. Yes, his his existence is slightly happier (laughs) in the books than than it was in Sunday night's episode. But then at the end of Dance with Dragons, you do get a hint that something may have happened to him. Jon Snow receives a letter ostensibly from Ramsay Bolton saying, basically, I've killed Stannis and I've killed his whole army and ah, I'm evil and I'm going to attack you next. And it's so cartoonishly evil that people don't even believe that Ramsay wrote it. I mean, it's like, P.S., I am evil. (laughs) It is sort of the most evil letter. And so then that in the books is what spurs on Jon's assassination because he says, I'm going to go ride and fight Ramsay. And that is when they say, well, that is a bridge too far for us. And they all stab him. Right. Because they're not upset about the wildlings thing. And clearly they let the wildlings through the gate. So at some point they must have had a conversation like we can accept this to a point. So in the books, what pushes them over the edge? This it, pink letter from Ramsay. Yes, oh, it is oh that, it's the so letter. He, okay. he specifically says that I am going to take an army of wildlings and attack Winterfell. Which, if you think about it, is sort of like, you know, in World War II, if an allied commander had said, oh, I have a great plan to win the war. We just need to have the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor again. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that sort of (laughs) 
would have gone out over too well. And there's a whole thing where that aspect of it, that's not their fight. And that's him taking something personal that he hit in his his men's of the night's watch vows. Mm -hmm. He had he was to disavow his ties to his family, his land title, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. And this is him going against his vows, which is what justifies it in their minds to basically is, fire him yes, from his he job. Is taking, he was taking part in the wars of the realm right. officially by attacking Ramsay. Instead so, of yes. protecting the realm. You know, there's this bigger thing with the White Walkers out there, in case you hadn't noticed. And that's supposed to be, like, what they're doing. And going off to go be like, but wait, Ramsay has one of my sisters and... I got to do this and that and the other thing. And it's a different sister. But still, the idea is that it's a family matter for him and Mm -hmm. that he has put aside his Night's Watch vows to go take on this thing. He wants to go take an army over here. And they're saying, no, you can't do that. You made a vow and you are our Lord Commander or not. Or you're nothing. Not anymore. You're nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So going back to Stannis for just a minute, Jen, you wrote a piece today on what this means for House Baratheon. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, basically, there is no more House Baratheon. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stannis has killed his brother. He has killed his daughter. His wife has killed herself. So, you know, even if this barren woman were somehow pregnant yet again, which is unlikely considering he and Melisandre have all the sex and not him and his wife, (laughs) there are no more Baratheons unless you count Gendry over here, who technically is a bastard and not legitimized. Remind us who Gendry is. Gendry is the only living remaining bastard of King Robert that didn't get killed in that whole King's Landing massacre where they went around killing all the bastard babies and the brothel and all that. At the beginning of season two. Right. So at one point, Melisandre had gone to go get Gendry and bring him back to Dragonstone to be like, let's sacrifice him for the king's blood, did the leeches instead, but then wanted to go back and sacrifice him yet again. Davos set him free. So he's off rowing in a boat somewhere, still rowing. Yes, yes, they sent him Mm. free at the end of season three, and he has not been seen or heard from since. But he could come back. Joe Dempsey, the actor, I don't, I haven't seen him (laughs) make any major commitments that would inhibit that. I think he's free. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so um, if they want to bring him back, and if someone wanted to legitimize him, he could be, you know, an heir to House Baratheon, and he could technically fill a gap somewhere in mm-hmm. that if, say, Tommen dies. Because, you know, all the Lannister children are kind of dying now. Yeah. Sorry, Marcella. Um, yeah, so, what, what and was... Tommen's technically not really a Baratheon. And so right. if the news of that kind of becomes public, i.e. Cersei's trial, Cersei's confessions, anything that she has to do with further mm-hmm. atonement, well, then King Robert's true son did not take the throne. What other sons does he have? There's Gendry over here. And there might be more bastards running around. But for the purposes of the show, Gendry is the only one. Yeah, he's know. the only yes. one out there. Okay. And he's in a rowboat as far yes. as we know. You mentioned Marcella. Was that death a show invention, or do we see that in the books? She gets attacked, but yes. she only loses an ear. Yes, she gets maimed cartoonishly, <laughs> and so then they need to hide her from the Jamie equivalent. They the they Jamie do equivalent? send they send it's not some, Jamie yes. that goes there. Ah, they send a, they send a, a fairly nice Kingsguard member down to Dorne to check on her. So there's no touching moment between father and oh, daughter. Oh no. no, oh no. Um, and as far as the books are concerned, none of Joffrey, Marcella, or Tommen ever suspect that Jamie's anything other than their beloved uncle. And granted, they're all younger, and so they don't have as much grounds to be mature enough to suspect. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about Tom in, in the in, in the story at this point in the books. is like eight, and he, yeah. likes, he prefers to play with cats versus having sex with his wife, <laughs> you know? So granted, they don't know, but how could they know? Yes. But Marcella, no, does not die at this point in the story. She's only maimed, and... and 
part of why she's maimed is because there was this whole subplot we didn't even get, which was... Which was, uh, there was the plot in Doran was not to kill Marcella, it was to crown Marcella queen because she was older than Tommen, oh. and thus by Dornish law, she should have been what? queen after Joffrey. Was Ilaria Sand involved at all in um, any of this? No. no. <laughs> Someone else that they Somebody cut. else that they were, we were, okay. we were, Doran this season is vastly different from the book. I suspect that it went back to a change that they had to make for Daenerys' storyline. One Dornish person goes to visit Daenerys, and it's very complicated. And so I'm guessing that they cut that out, and they realized once they cut that out, then they had to cut out mm. a few other things, and they changed it enough that they said, well, enough things had changed that they sort of needed to do a wholesale reinvention. So the, the short version of what happens in the book is that Prince Doran has more children, one of them is a daughter who fe- who is the eldest daughter but feels like she is being passed over in the line of secession. So as sort of a way of rebelling against her father, she decides to crown Marcella queen according to Dornish law, and the plot goes up in smoke. But um, this is why Dorn in the books is more interesting than the way Dorn is on the show because they have kind of more going on. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, but it, it's a lot going on at sort of a later point in the narrative, and so I'm guessing... With the show feeling like it needs to wrap up in seven seasons, they realized that they couldn't do a Doran storyline that takes up Mm -hmm. as much space as it does in the books. And so they needed to sort of go with an abbreviated version just because that was all they had time for. The bigger question that we didn't get last night is at the end of A Feast for Crows, there's a major revelation about Prince Doran where he reveals that he has been on the side of the Targaryens the entire time. And that's kind of like his motivations yes, for so some of the things he's been doing are not acting on certain things where you think he's just being passive and ah. sitting in his yes. chair and so, watching yes, people. There he's a actually secret. plotting. There was wow. a big, he like spins his chair around and says, but wait, <laughs> I've actually been trying to marry my children off to Daenerys and Viserys since they were children, <laughs> since they were babies. Yes, and so last night we did not get that, but they we, they also didn't not confirm it, and so it we may have just spoiled season six right. for anybody listening to this podcast. Some of these things podcast, could but. happen later, and mm-hmm. you know there are things that maybe you know Stannis is about to die, or his daughter is about to die, yeah, in the or books that have yet to be a, yeah. published. But as far as we know, yes. at this point, certain people are still alive, so it's unclear whether the show has created yes. these. Yes, and plots I think or... it's it's gone far enough away from the books that. It's increasingly hard for us to say because X happened in the show mm-hmm. that is an indicator that something will happen in the books. Although it's very tempting. It's always very tempting to say, okay, Shireen is going to die soon because we know she is not important to the end game. But, but yeah, but it's hard to say because George R. R. Martin does say that they will end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure anybody who has been killed off in the show does not have a major role to play. But then the question is, how do you define major? Was there anything in this finale that you thought was a, a particularly good adaptation from the book where we were like, that is actually pretty close to what happened? I thought Cersei's, Cersei's walk, walk was, was remarkably well done. That was one of the standout sequences in the book. You knew that it was always going to be a hard scene to film just production-wise and extra-wise, performance-wise. And I thought they did a very good job. Uh, I thought Lena Headey did a remarkable job of subtly portraying her shift from the beginning of her walk where she is sort of defiant and says, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a very long walk. I, I can do this. All these people are nothing. I don't need to care about them. To sort of very slowly, very gradually breaking her spirit mm-hmm. over the course of it. It was certainly not a subtle scene. Uh, <laughs> what with the, the septa intoning shame, shame. And, you know, <laughs> and everybody flashing her and the crowd shouting horror, horror. 
But I thought it was effective and it did lay sort of the misogyny of this society out. So we actually have a question from one of our listeners about this scene. This question is from Laura. She wanted us to talk about the appearance of Sir Robert Strong, Uh um, who's the zombified mountain. And she asks, do you think this promises a trial by combat for Cersei next season? And if the mountain fights as her champion, who do you think would oppose him? Clegg and Bull. I I am pretty sure that Laura is referring and trying to bait us into a discussion (laughs) on one of the most popular fan theories for what is called the Clegane Bull. What is the Clegane Bull? Well, you (laughs) know how the mountain has a brother named the Hound? Yes. Yes. You know how... um, That we did not see the Hound die. Oh, At the end of season we, four. Okay. He was left for he dead. He was left for dead. But? But nobody, we didn't see the heart stop. We didn't see the eyes flicker. We didn't get the the, the medical show indication that he was 100% dead. And there are and, a lot of people who like to believe no matter how often you see someone die, that they are going to live somehow in the show in some other form. In the books, it is not as much wishful thinking as it is on the show. There are some hints you meet an, a character that is essentially a glorified extra, a gravedigger, grave digger, who right. has an affinity for dogs and is where you know and has an injury <laughs> in his foot and is wearing a hood that covers his face so you can't and, see who he is. And isn't there something about the horse? Oh yes, and who has a horse that resembles the horse that he was last seen with, and so there <laughs> is there is sort of a hint if you've been reading it if you are reading closely that. The hound survived mm. what he was doing and is living a new life, basically working as a humble day laborer for um, a, basically a monastery in the Riverlands. And so because he has this religious connection, a lot of fans are hoping that he will be brought back to duel his Frankenstein's monster brother <laughs> in an upcoming book. There are and a lot that of, theory yeah. is called the Clegane Bowl, and the official slogan is, get hyped. <laughs> yeah. um, I myself don't quite I don't know if I don't believe it or if I don't want to believe it I like the ending that the hound gets I I would be very happy that this man who has gone through so much pain would just be living out the rest of his life in a monastery Mm -hmm. digging graves Um, it seemed at least that he had found some peace when we last saw him but I understand why people would want to see it you don't get very many sort of fist pumping in the air moments in this series and so I understand why people would want to root for, for sure. as many of those to happen as possible. But you can argue for a lot of these theories about people's resurrections, and some of them seem plausible, some of them seem like tinfoil. It just depends. But people just don't want to let their favorite characters go. Right. And even if the show has made a decision that this character has died, even though this character lives in the books, or is resurrected in the books, or has some form of new life in the books, there are people who still refuse to let... Who might pe- you be referring to, Jen? John <laughs> I think, yeah, that's, that's a great segue into the biggest death from the finale. And there have been a lot of people who just simply do not believe he is dead. Can you explain why people still hold out hope, despite the fact that we saw him lying on his back with his eyes wide open? Well, there is a passage in the book when this happens. And at the moment in which he is being stabbed, John is thinking about Ghost, his direwolf. And as we have seen with many of the Stark children, even if he's only half Stark, they have this ability to warg or skin change into their direwolves. Whether or not they've fully figured it all out or not, some of them just have wolfy dreams and don't really know what they're doing. But there are people that hope and pray that John at that moment will warg into ghost and that somehow he will become ghost and then maybe warg out a ghost into someone else because there's this other character in the books named Varamir Sixkins who manages to do just that mm-hmm. temporarily. 
but he manages. Mm -hmm. So there's a belief that your soul could live on in another human being. And there's also, well, we've seen resurrection happen with, say, Beric Dondarrion and via Thoris of Mir, one of the red priests, and Melisandre, red priestess is at the, you know, Castle Black at that moment. Couldn't she do something? There were all these plausible scenarios that people have for maybe a way that Jon Snow could live. We haven't gotten a glimpse of the rules of the Lord of Light resurrection. We don't know how long someone has to be dead. Mm -hmm. So it is plausible that he will come back. Kit Harington has been saying that he won't. He told told Jennifer he won't. But what else is he going to say? That's true. So I I don't discount them entirely, but I don't think that anything that he or the producers say is proof that he is not coming back. They say it's definitive. (laughs) They say we need to learn accept it. They could be just faking us out, and maybe we'll see something else come season six, but this is what they're telling us. So for now, I think this is all we, we need to go, go through our of. stages of grief and <laughs> our stage of denial here. Yes, we are currently accept. in denial. Yeah, there, or bargaining. We are, denial we are bargaining with the rules of R'hllor, and then maybe, maybe in a few months from now, we'll finally get into acceptance. <laughs> Well, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us, Gazelle. Thank you for having us. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Please let us know what you think of the show. You'll find us on Twitter at Vulture, and you can email us any questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. Our producer is Sarah Abduraman. Our senior producer is Laura Mayer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a comment or rating wherever you subscribe. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Nate Jones, and you can find me on Twitter at, at KN and the numeral 8. And I'm Jennifer Vineyard. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.